This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, And it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. It's a fact. The battle for dominance between left and right is no contest. The right wins, hands down. We're not talking politics. About 90% of us are right-handed. To be fair, lefties are a pretty accomplished lot, from Obama and Oprah to McCartney and Mozart. Plus, of course, our resident lefty, Rita Braver. So what's it like to be left-handed when 90% of humans are righties? Are there any advantages to being left-handed? Well, we never miss a toll booth. That's a thing. <laughs> Cheers to lefties. Cheers to lefties. Coming up on Sunday morning, I may, I may be left-handed, but I'm always right. right. The myth and mystery of being a lefty. She's a woman who's taken one of life's simple gifts and, as Lee Cowan will show us, turned it into something extraordinary. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. Lauren Bacall made whistling sound so easy. Until you listen to Molly Lewis's whistling. What's the highest note you think you can hit? Maybe it's that. Whoa. Put your hands and lips together for Whistler Molly Lewis, ahead on Sunday morning. Morocco will be looking back at the life of Peggy Lee, a legendary singer whose signature cool always turned up the heat. Romeo loved Juliet, Juliet she felt the same. Peggy Lee was never cooler than when she sang Fever with a finger-snapping arrangement all her own. Was she actually really good at snapping her fingers? She was really good at snapping her fingers. She had this big old diamond ring. <laughs> I can't do it because I don't have the long fingers. Later on Sunday morning, Miss Peggy Lee. Faith Saley discovers a footnote to history in New York's Central Park. Seth Doan visits a town in Tuscany that's off the grid in more ways than one. 
Anthony Mason introduces us to Alana Hyam, star of the indie film Licorice Pizza. Plus, we stretch out with Luke Burbank and more on this Sunday morning for the 6th of February, 2022. We'll be back in a moment. Ask any lefty. It's not easy being left-handed in a right-handed world. Our favorite Southpaw, Rita Braver, uses some first-hand experience to explain. This could be any gift and gadget shop. There's scissors, notebooks, and pens. But these items and scores of other products in this store are specifically designed for left-handed people. Take this pastry server. The sharp cutting edge is on the left side. So. The correct side, we like to say. <laughs> you may recall the Leftorium from The Simpsons. Wow, what an icebreaker. Left-handed ledges. Now I can write all the way to the edge. But lefties in San Francisco is the real thing. So neat. Opened by Margaret Majua in 2008. And guess what? You are not a lefty. No, no, I can't even fake it. I'm terrible with my left hand. No surprise. Lefties, including your faithful correspondent, make up only an estimated 10% of the world's population. And Majua understands that we sometimes feel, well, left out. So some of your best friends are left-handed, I know. <laughs> of course, we lefties do have greatness in our ranks. Artists. Actors. Musicians. Techies. And eight of 45 presidents, including President Bill Clinton. We seem to be overrepresented in certain fields. Maybe we're politics, safe cracking, I don't know. <laughs> Has it ever impeded you? No, I don't think it's ever impeded me. When I started studying the way the brain functions, it made me wonder whether it really was a sign of being a little more creative and non-rational in the way you think. And I have no conclusions on it. Even it's, about yourself? No, I don't. So there has been this myth that lefties are more creative. Oh, let's kill it. Together, <laughs> here and now, let's just But there is some research that shows that left-handed people organize thoughts in a different way and tasks in a different way. Absolutely, and that is, that is really mysterious. Author and journalist David Wallman was so intrigued by the mysteries and myths surrounding left-handers like him that he spent a year traveling the world to write a book about the hand often associated with the devil. The very word left comes from the Old English lift, meaning weak or worthless. The Latin word for left is sinister, so that's just really that right mean, out on the right? table. Gauche in French, Gauche. which also means kind of crude and right. undesirable. You should certainly not be eating with the left hand in countries where you don't have utensils. Why is that? Well, you know, it's not the cleanest dinner table talk, but um, the answer to that is that in poorer parts of the world, people are trying to keep separate which hand they eat with and which hand they clean themselves with. You mean after using the bathroom, so to speak. Exactly. And older Americans may still remember when writing with the left hand was a no-no. There were school teachers who were trying to whack this behavior out of them. And in other parts of the world, punishments were very severe for following what is just a natural tendency. Lefties know all the jobs. The left-handed compliment. And more recently, swipe left for reject. And there's always having two left feet. Still. Many lefties are great athletes, from quarterbacks to tennis players. In baseball, I think it, it definitely is a good thing. Sean Doolittle is not out in left field. He's one in a long line of famous southpaw pitchers. In 2019, he was the closer, helping the Washington Nationals win game one of the World Series. I got brought in in the eighth inning when they had a left-handed hitter up. 
And so I got the final out of the eighth inning and I, I finished the ninth inning and we got the win. Into left center field, Robles is there and the Nationals take game one. One of the advantages seems to be that lefty pitchers are good, not just at getting left-handed batters out, but also right-handed batters because righties aren't used to facing people like you so much. Right, it's just a different look because in, in baseball there are, there are much, much fewer left-handed pitchers, so the ball's coming in on a different angle. But like most human beings, left or right-handed, Doolittle is also a bit ambidextrous. I play golf right-handed, I kick with my right foot, I'm pretty good with scissors. Which hand do you bat with? I just realized this, I swing a bat lefty, but I swing a golf club righty, that's pretty weird. So much is weird about being left-handed. Scientists know it's at least partially genetic, but they've never been able to figure out exactly how it's passed on. Now a recent study by scientists at the University of Oxford using genetic data from some 400,000 United Kingdom residents has revealed important new information. Dr. Akira Weiberg. We compared the differences in DNA sequence between a very large group of left-handers and a large group of right-handers. And what that showed was that there were four regions in the genome where the two groups were significantly different on average. Professor Gwen Duo says the study found some very preliminary connections between handedness and development of certain diseases. The proportion is ever so slightly higher for schizophrenia in left-handed people. And that's exactly the opposite in Parkinson's disease. So if you are left-handed, you've got a slightly lesser risk of developing Parkinson's disease. But again, this, we are talking about very, very small effects. Still, Professor Dominic Furness says the discovery could yield important information on devising new treatments. What are the important structures within the brain that are not working properly in these diseases? Why are they not working properly at a very fundamental level? The study also found some differences between left and right-handers in the brain's white matter, the material through which messages pass to the central nervous system. So that's really uh, connecting the different parts of your brain that are enabling language. The study does say that your findings raise the possibility that left-handed people have an advantage when it comes to performing verbal tasks. This is really a, a theory that we have uh, that requires scientific testing, I would say. Sometimes, like, I feel a little bit different than everyone else. Youth psychologist Charlotte Resnick, a lefty herself, welcomes the idea of more scientific research. It's helpful to educate others who are right-handed because it's really it's a little tough to be left-handed in a right-handed world sometimes. But the young lefties she introduced us to seem to take it all in stride. I don't pay attention to that. Even the ink stains. That's the only bad thing I've noticed about being lefty is that you always get it on your hand. It's very annoying. Still, it's something that you should be proud of and even though you're different. What would you say to parents who think, oh gosh, my child would just do better because the world is right-handed. Hey! <laughs> no! And what would lefty expert David Woolman do if somebody came to you and said, okay, I can magically make you right-handed like everybody else? Me? What, yeah, what would you say? I would say, are you out of your mind? Right. No, never. No, no, and no. <laughs> Me either. Right? <laughs> That's the theme from The Andy Griffith Show. Now, Lee Cowan has the tale of a young woman who's turned her perfect pitch into beautiful music. You'd forgive the songbirds for being a bit jealous of Molly Lewis. Out here in the California hills, her song carries just as sweetly as theirs. I guess some people would hum or sing, but I feel comfortable with a whistle. Do you find yourself doing it when you don't even realize you're doing it? 
yeah, I think I do it a lot more than I realize. When people hear, which isn't hard, that they ask what she does, she proudly says she's a musician. And then, of course, they ask, like, what do you play? And then it's like, ah, uh, I whistle. And, you know, I know people don't really understand what that means most of the time. This is what that means. It's not a whistle-while-you-work kind of trifle. For her, whistling is work. Have a great evening. I think it's quite special to people, the sound of whistling, because it's human, but it's a difficult path, the path of the whistler. But it sounds like you were originally just doing it more or less for fun. Yeah, no, no, I was not getting into whistling for the, the big bucks. <laughs> Born in Australia, raised in Los Angeles, she told us her parents were the ones who helped foster her pitch-perfect pucker. They definitely encouraged it. They got me into this in some ways. It's their fault. Because they knew you had a talent for yeah. it? Or just a passion for it? Or both, I, I guess. I mean, yeah, both. They're not like stage parents, though. They weren't trying to kind of, you know, make me a star or anything. But when she was 22, she entered a national whistling competition. She didn't win, but it was an eye-opener. I went there and I was like, okay, I definitely am a freak. Like, this is, you know, the whistle world is, it's a lot of interesting weirdos. Weird or not, it is a remarkable talent. She can whistle just about anything she hears from memory. I never learned to read music because I always had a really good ear so I could kind of pick things out. Take the theme from the good, the bad, and the ugly, for example. I tried to follow that, I'll never know. Hey. Wait, no. Hey, that was very good. <laughs> She's being overly generous. I don't know anything about real whistling, including, it turns out, how we feel when we do whistle. When you're whistling, it's kind of impossible to be sad. Right? No, that is not true. Is that right? I think it's a misconception that you only whistle when you're happy. Uh, I think I, I whistle through all emotions. Wow, thank you. <laughs> Who are all your people? At 31, her talent has landed her not only on stage, but it also got her a record deal. This was the release party for her debut EP, The Forgotten Edge. We were invited, and we watched the audience stand in quiet amazement. I feel like when it's silent in the room, it's it's a good sign. It's a good thing. Yes, because I know people are listening. It's a soft instrument. I'm a whistler. It's not a rock band. And yet, she does have groupies, just like any rock band does. Thank you so much. Along with autographs. She was handing fans her Molly Lewis branded lip balm. So, what did you guys think of her overall? Magical, like a dream. How do you sign this, please? I know that it's unusual. There's a lady up there whistling on stage. You know, it's not <laughs> something you see every day. Leaving fans pleasantly baffled by just how to categorize her music. Whistling is somewhere in between an instrument and a voice, it's in this whole other category. So it kind of, you know, scratches this itch that you didn't even know that you had. The name Molly Lewis is now on a lot of people's lips. And no one seems quite as surprised as Molly Lewis herself. It's taken me a while to kind of feel confident with saying, like, I'm, I'm a whistler, this is what I'm doing. You know, it's, it's still something that I you know, I can't really believe is happening. It kind of found you. The whistle found me, yeah. <laughs> Seth Doan has sent us this postcard from Tuscany, partly because he had no other choice. He'll explain. 
This village in Tuscany, framed by cypress trees, does not just appear tranquil. The silence and, and it's beautiful. The only thing you hear is people talking in the street. The ambient sounds here are that of conversation and not on a cell phone. Signal? Nessun servizio, as we say. <laughs> no service. No service. Pretty yes. typical. Yes, yes. Carlo Ducci grew up near Galliano di Mugello and wrote a guidebook about this place. This is a part of Tuscany that's a little less lesser known. Yes, it's, it's a hidden jewel. A medieval jewel with a modern distinction. While it was once part of the fiefdom of the mighty Medici family, now it's noteworthy for the lack of power overhead. There's no cell phone service. The town butcher runs his business mostly by landline. No line at all, no bars at all. He does keep a mobile phone handy, but not for calls. <laughs> You're playing a game. This town is not alone. There are 91 municipalities across Tuscany struggling with cell phone service in a country which is surprisingly way behind technological times. Italy ranks near the bottom of the European Commission's Index of Digital Competitiveness, just behind Latvia, Czech Republic and Croatia. For me, it's not a big sacrifice, butcher Andrea Guasti told us. But for those who need to work or are involved in long-distance learning, there are great difficulties. And they go to great lengths, as we learned on this long road on the outskirts of town. You come here to study? Yes, I come here often when the house doesn't have internet, Gregorio Ferretti told us. This 17-year-old says nearly once a week he has to hike up here as the slightest weather disruption knocks out their already shaky internet. There's no mobile service in town. But up here, he can get a little signal. Three, tre, tre bar. Tre bar, non sono male, non sono male. It's not bad, three bars is not bad. Online learning, prompted by the pandemic, has created particular problems in this place, only eased a bit by the view. We have found the beauty of life and the connection between friends, he told us, but we are a little isolated. At the local inn, owner Valentina Parini felt that isolation. She has a landline at reception, but that wasn't very helpful last winter when she was sleeping upstairs with just her cell phone and heard a burglar. I tried to call police from all corners of the room, she told us. How hard was it to get a line that night on the phone? 20 minutes. 20 minutes, 20 minutes. The village's mayor told us there's not enough profit in this tiny town for telecom companies to invest. This is more than just an inconvenience, though. It can also be a, a public safety issue, a hazard. We have a civil protection plan, Gian Piero Mongatti told us. For example, in December 2019, we had a seismic event. We tried to reach residents, but they were outside where there was no signal. So we had to send out the police with a megaphone. He's hopeful millions of euros in new European Union funding aimed at closing the digital divide could help Italy. Now the battle is to find a solution, he said, and then we have the battle of fighting for the timeline. It sounds like a, no offense, it sounds like a very Italian situation. I would have said the same, he admitted. But while the practicality of this poses a challenge, in a place with no cell phones ringing or dinging, residents told us they have found the joy of conversation in person. So perhaps they're better connected after all. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours 
and great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. It's 843 acres of open space on a very crowded Manhattan island. But Central Park still has its secrets, and Faith Saley came across one that may surprise you. Most people who walk through Central Park, from tourists to lifelong New Yorkers, have no idea of the history under their feet. Where are we? We are in the heart of Seneca Village. This is where the churches would be nearby, the schools would be in this area. In 1825, a 25-year-old African-American shoeshiner named Andrew Williams bought this land, two years before slavery was abolished in New York. We'll return to his story later. More free black Americans followed, fleeing the disease and discrimination of downtown. And together, they created a bustling settlement of their own, known as Seneca Village. Seneca Village was a place of opportunity, it was a reaction to racism. Cynthia Copeland is president of the Institute for the Exploration of Seneca Village History and has spent decades uncovering its story. There's a chance that Seneca Village was part of the Underground Railroad? There is, and it's speculative but highly probable. Why do you think the history has been untold and unknown until relatively recently? The victorious are the ones who get to write the stories. These were people who were forgotten. And it is unfortunate that the story was hidden for so long. Uh, but it's great that the story is now has emerged. Much of the story is an enduring mystery. But an archaeological dig unearthed hundreds of artifacts from the villagers' middle-class lives. We found lots of beautiful bottles, a shoe that was probably the size um, that was used by one of the children, and one of the students just started to cry. Seneca Village was home to the largest number of African-American property owners in New York before the Civil War. And because those black men possessed property, they had the ability to vote. Irish and German immigrants moved in too, and white and black villagers attended church side by side. But when New York City elites wanted to create a park that rivaled those of Europe, they were drawn to the middle of Manhattan. There was a smear campaign that was created in the media. We've got to get rid of all those people that live in the park that shouldn't be there. They are tramp squatters and thieves. This is the kind of language that they used. In 1853, the city used eminent domain to take control of the land. In all, about 1,600 residents were displaced, including nearly 300 from Seneca Village. People were not happy, and they put up a fight. But to no avail. Seneca Village lasted only 32 years. Central Park was created, and the rest is history. But an incomplete history until recently. A monument to a prominent Seneca Village family is underway, and the Central Park Conservancy installed an outdoor exhibit. So we believe that this was the main water source for the village. This was a natural spring that has existed for a really long time. Marie Warsh is a historian for the Conservancy and gives tours of the landscape. About the reservoir was here. It seems like Central Park has always existed. So I think people are really amazed that there were people living here. One of the questions I think a lot of people have is, where did everybody go? Who are the descendants? That was the question. What happened to the people? Where did they go? And I said, well, I'll take on the job of looking them up. Cal Jones, Manhattan Borough Historian Emeritus, has spent thousands of hours researching the residents, starting with Andrew Williams, the shoeshiner. He was a visionary. So I can see him building the house off of the road. You can see this, this is the two, two lots. I looked at the Andrew Williams Seneca Village as sort of like a puzzle. Now let me put the pieces of this puzzle together to see this beautiful picture. 
And last year, that picture became a lot clearer when someone with a familiar name heard about his quest and reached out. It almost felt like I uh, found a treasure. Andrew Thomas Williams IV is the great-great-great-grandson of Andrew Williams. He and his wife Mariah didn't realize the connection to Seneca Village until a researcher messaged them on Facebook. And suddenly, the history of Seneca Village became the history of their family. My great-grandfather had a music school where he taught music, and it made the whole Andrew Thomas Williams line so much better because I really truly now get that connection. It's not just a name. How did that feel to you? It gave me a sense of being and a sense of pride. So I walk a little taller and I feel a lot stronger. When they toured Seneca Village, they just had to share the news. I remember uh, the tour guide saying, we haven't been able to locate any descendants. And so then I said, descendants right here. <laughs> oh, they started clapping. They was excited. They were like, wow. And yeah. all we can do is honor the past. And nothing covered can ever get healed. One day, Andrew Thomas Williams IV says he'll pass along this family heirloom to his oldest son, a ring with an A that belonged to his great-grandfather, a precious reminder to keep telling the story. There are others out there. Yeah. The story just has to be put out. And I think uh, then we'll learn a whole lot more than what we, the little that we know now. Exactly. And knowing the whole story, man, wow. That, that's got to be amazing when that comes out. Fever in the morning, fever all through the night. Fever was a huge hit for the legendary Peggy Lee back in the 50s. Maraca has the story of the singer-songwriter with the sultry voice and cool vibe. And I stood there, shivering in my pajamas, watched the whole world go up in flame. And when it was all over, I said to myself, is that all there is to a fire? In 1970, Peggy Lee won a Grammy for Is That All There Is? Is that all there is? A song that many heard as an anthem of ennui, but not Lee. She saw it as absolutely life-affirming and hopeful that bad things are gonna happen and that you can rise above them. Let's break out the Stand back and have a ball. Holly Foster Wells is Peggy Lee's granddaughter. Celebrate life in spite of, of all of this that's happening. That's the way my love is like the sun that shines above And Peggy Lee had a lot to celebrate. At 50, she was already a legend, an artist of astonishing versatility. Black coffee. A master of cool. Then was then. A heartbreaker. And now is now. Cause I'm a woman. And a trailblazer. Musically, how many different Peggy Lees oh, were there? God. <laughs> Dozens. Watch that fringe and see how it flutters. There's Latin. Sugar. There's blues. Things are swinging. There's jazz. Pass me by. There's pop. Peter Richmond wrote a biography of Lee. Oh, you want me to do the folks who live on the hill? So you'll weep? I can do that. You want me to do black coffee? So you think it's like, oh, I'm hanging out with junkies at a kitchen table? I can do that. And all of those Peggy Lees can be traced back to the desolate plains of North Dakota. And the girl then named Norma Dolores Eggstrom here in the tiny town of Wimbledon, in what's now the Peggy Lee Museum, Norma spent her high school years. Her mother had died when she was just four. Her father, the town's railroad depot manager, was an alcoholic. And he really at times couldn't run the depot, so she would have to take over for him. Worse still, her father remarried a woman who was physically abusive. Lee later wrote that her stepmother once beat her over the head with a cast-iron skillet. 
And my grandmother, she said she would look out at the railroad tracks and just imagine where they led. It was a way out. That's what the railroad represented to her. And of course, her other way out was music. Waiting for the train to come in. By 17, she was singing on the radio as Peggy Lee. And before long, had plenty money, 1922. touring with Benny Goodman's band, often the only woman on the bus. And she said that these men always looked out for her. People took her under their wing. She had that quality where you wanted to protect her. I'm gonna be a shady lady bird. By now, she'd cultivated a style that was as minimalist as the landscape she'd grown up in. Cool, but never cold. You wouldn't be a wandering eye from door to door. Why don't you do right? She had the philosophy of less is more. And she would bring you in, like you had to pay attention. And so for the rest of her life, she knew that the more she could get the room silent, the more she's got them. She said the challenge is to leave out all but the essentials, keeping it right there, minimal. You get me in a spin, oh, what a stew I'm in, cause I don't know enough about you. It was while touring with Benny Goodman that she met guitarist Dave Barber. They married in 1943. And they had such chemistry together. That was the love of her life, my grandfather. But Barber, like her father, had a drinking problem, one that only got worse as Lee got bigger. And the marriage ended in 1951. A woman alone. And it broke her heart. But just as she always has done, it fueled her music. Don't cry. There'll be another spring. The 1950s were Lee's most prolific and innovative period. A rarity among women at the time, she was a singer-songwriter with 270 songs to her name. As a kid, was it really cool for you that your grandmother was part of Lady and the Tramp? That's how my friends knew of her. He's a tramp. But they love him. She co-wrote the score to the Disney classic. She's the voice of the Siamese cats. She's Darling, the mother. Fluffy sleeper. Hiya, handsome. Come to join the party. She's Peg in the dog pound. Never know how much I love you. Never know how much I care. And in 1958, Lee had her biggest hit with Fever, with an arrangement all her own. Just bass, drums, and finger snaps. She's keeping so much in. If this is the only thing to signal what you're singing about, that's powerful. But to see Peggy Lee live was to be spellbound. There's a tape of her singing C.C. Rider. Oh, yes. Hypnotic. I know exactly what performance that is at Basin Street East. And she barely moves. Like she just moves a little shoulder and just her face, and it's so sexy. And this was the living room. It was inevitable that Peggy Lee would achieve icon status. She kind of came up with that bob and the glasses. And then it's funny because then I saw Gwen Stefani doing the same thing. So, probably not a coincidence. No. She inspired the Muppets character, Miss Piggy, originally named Miss Piggy Lee. She thought that was fantastic. I mean, that pig is glamorous. Miss Piggy is the paragon of glamour. Right. And she's a diva, and my grandma was a diva. So. Yes, it's a good day. And her life was glamorous. She recorded these home movies of parties at her Bel Air estate. But one song spoke to her greatest unfulfilled wish. Someday we'll build a home on a hilltop high. 
The Folks Who Live on the Hill, that's her very favorite song. And I think it just paints this picture of an idyllic relationship and growing old together and always having that soulmate by your side. The folks who live on the hill. After Dave Barber, Lee married and divorced three more times before she died in 2002. And do you think she was ultimately happy? It's a really complicated question. I think she had incredible moments of happiness, but interspersed with incredible loss, heartbreak, disappointment, fear. And where do you think the fear came from? She said, actually, it came from growing up without what really, what she felt was a home. And then one day he went away, and I thought I'd die, but I didn't. But she wouldn't have been Peggy Lee without this heartache and this pain, and that is what resonates with people is that truth. Let's break all the booze. She would say to me, this music is going to outlive me. She knew. She knew. If that's all. Suffice it to say, Luke Burbank isn't taking this back-to-the-office talk lying down. With vaccination rates up and some sense of normalcy returning to American life, many white-collar employees are being called back to the office. Of course, there's still some hesitancy around that for a variety of reasons, but I want to say for the record, I am happy to return to the workplace as long as I can bring my bed. Let me explain. Like a lot of privileged Americans who had the option of working from home, I started the pandemic embracing the dream of the standing desk. I got one and knew with absolute certainty that I'd emerge post-COVID a better, stronger Luke Burbank. By day, I'd stand at my workstation, dazzling my remote colleagues with my discipline and efficiency. By night, I'd ride my exercise bike to nowhere, impressing a whole different group of people with my cool Peloton name, Spin Diesel. So yeah, that was the dream, but what really happened? Well, in all honesty, just about any time my Zoom camera was off, I was working from bed. And I don't mean late at night, dashing off a last few emails. I mean like at 2 p.m. on a Wednesday. Some people might call that low-level depression, and some people might have a point. Still, I can't be the only one, right? For the record, I've always kind of been this way. If there's something hard that needs doing, I like to be as comfortable as possible while doing it. I just think my brain functions better when the rest of my body is being cradled by a mattress that I bought off the internet because I heard about it on a podcast. Society tells us we should be tracking our steps and mastering our bodies so we can absolutely crush it at life. Every low-cal beer commercial celebrates the impossibly fit people who work hard and play harder. Where's the aspirational ad for those of us who work horizontally and then get pretty drowsy? I guess my point is, in one way or another, we all did what we had to do to get through this pandemic. I went into COVID, one of those people who made fun of the term self-care, and I'm coming out of it as a true believer. If we don't take care of ourselves, it's pretty hard to take care of the people who need us. At least that's what I've learned. And I've also decided that I'm not gonna be embarrassed about my unique style of productivity. I know there are lots of other people like me, a silent but cozy majority who can't wait to put their sweats on, pile up their pillows just so, and go take on the day. Alana Hyam's debut acting role has critics raving, but she's no stranger to show business. She makes up one-third of the rock band Hyam with her two older sisters. Anthony Mason takes note of Alana and her siblings. Don't call me all the time, okay? We're not boyfriend and girlfriend. Remember that. In her first-ever acting role, Alana Hyam is getting a lot of attention. I'm cooler than you. Don't forget it. To the girl with the mousy hair. 
The Hollywood Reporter called her performance in Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza one of the most exciting screen debuts in recent memory. I think it's weird that I hang out with Gary and his 15-year-old friends all the time. You got incredible reviews. Thank you. <laughs> it's crazy. I don't really know how to take it. In Anderson's ode to L.A.'s San Fernando Valley, set in 1973, she plays 25-year-old Alana Kane, Cooper Hoffman, son of the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, plays her teenaged suitor. Where are your parents? My mom works for me. Oh, of course she does. Yes, she does, that in my public sense. relations company. In your public relations company? Because you have that. Yes. And you're an actor. Yes. And you're a secret agent, too. <laughs> the director wrote the part for the 30-year-old Haim, but it was not their first collaboration. I'm lucky enough to have done so many music videos with Paul that we had such incredible trust. With her older sisters, Danielle and Esty, Alana is in the Grammy-nominated band Hyam. Anderson has directed eight of their videos. And he cast Alana's sisters and their parents as her family in the film. This scene, when Alana brings her atheist boyfriend to Shabbat dinner, was drawn from real life. Are you ready to do a barucha on the challah? I remember telling Paul that story, and then it was it was in the script. You knew how to play that oh, scene. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I knew how to play that scene. And my dad knew how to play that scene, especially. <laughs> Why would you do that? Why would you do that? I, he was maybe going to be my boyfriend. Listen, young lady, you don't bring this idiot to Shabbat dinner here. Listen, Dad, he's an atheist and an actor, and he's famous. But he's Jewish. He was going to take me out of here, Esty. Don't you even look at me. Don't you even look at me. You're always oh, looking at me. What I are you doing? I didn't say anything. What are you doing? What are you thinking, huh? Did you guys like making a movie? Loved. Of course. Loved. Loved. Not liked. <sighs> Loved. Right. It was so much fun. Filming reunited the usually inseparable sisters who'd been split up by COVID. You all are not used to not seeing each other. No. <laughs> so when did you start coming here? Oh my God, uh, Essie would I know. I remember a time when we didn't come here. So yeah. <laughs> For years, Cantor's Deli in LA has been the family hangout. Your album cover was right here. Yeah, we shot yeah, it right so here. Like... They're behind the counter on the cover of their latest album, Women in Music Part Three which was nominated for a Grammy for Album of the Year. When we played Canners for the first time in 90, it was either 98 or 99. Right. All of this was booths. And with their parents, they made their musical debuts here as kids in the family band Rockenheim. Who was in the crowd back here? No one. No one. <laughs> no one. They were so nervous, yeah. even though there was no one here. <laughs> they were paid in matzo ball soup, Oh my God! Which is still a favorite. And while they each played with other bands for a time, they soon saw. Nothing was as good as playing with our family. I had just graduated from college. Alana had just graduated from high school. Danielle wasn't touring anymore. And I think collectively we were like, we gotta do this. It's now or never. In 2012, Haim released their first EP. Our first show right after we got signed, I walked out the door and there was a line of people and I asked the first person, what, what is this line for? And they're like, to see you? <laughs> yeah. Their debut album, Days Are Gone, went to number one in the UK and number six in the US and caught the ear of Anderson the director of Boogie Nights, Magnolia, and Punch Drunk Love unknowingly already had a connection to the Hyam sisters. Your mom was an art teacher. My mom was yes, an art teacher. teacher. And she he was, was actually teacher. her student. Yes. yes, when he was around eight years old. Wow. Yeah. But every time one of his movies would pop on the TV when we were growing up, my mom would be like, you know, I taught the director of this movie. And we're like, really? <laughs> yeah, I taught him when he was eight years old. I did finger painting with him. We're like, okay, <laughs> okay mom. <cool>. <laughs> then through a mutual friend, they finally met. And he was like, you're Miss Rose's kids? And we were like, oh, God. 
<laughs> and he brought out a painting, he right? He brought out a yeah. painting. He said, I painted this with your mom. And I've kept it all these years. Well, Friendship. and then we like FaceTimed mom. Yeah, we FaceTimed mom. Like, <laughs> it was like a reunion. It just My felt mom. really fam it felt really familial. Yeah. You know? This amazing friendship just started and and now we refuse to let him go. As the sisters were making their second album, Anderson made a short film here in Valentine Recording Studios. Even being in this space, it's bringing back so many memories. And it was really the first time that we had seen something where it felt and looked and sounded like us. How would you describe that relationship artistically? A lot of trust. Yes. We trust him implicitly. Yeah. It's all led to Haim's big moment in Licorice Pizza. We're going back up the hill, okay? Okay. And Alana's starring role. Last thing. Okay. How do you feel about What's happened to her? Oh God. I mean, how do we feel like what's how happened do we feel to like her? <laughs> I mean, like the fact that like our our littlest sister is like this on-screen like gem, this star, like I always knew it was in you. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think you can see it in the music videos too. Like yeah. Alana's always been just this like shining. Predictable. <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say like this like shining beacon of light. You really can't take your eyes off Alana. Oh my god, thank you. Jesus. No, it's true. It's also weird to get uh, like compliments from your siblings. It feels weird. Thank you though. I You're welcome, Alana. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Please join us when our trumpet sounds again next Sunday morning. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey.